What is the best news that you have ever received? If you're worshiping with us online, I would encourage you to put in the chat what some of the best news you have ever received. If you're here worshiping with us in the room, you might pull out a journal or just be thinking about that. Maybe even take some time this afternoon to think about that. Oh, here's a, a list of a few of my favorites. There's a heartbeat. Congratulations. You're hired. It's not cancer. The surgery was successful. I love you. And this one belongs to the Reds. All right, some of those are more important than others, right? But I wonder if you've ever noticed that sometimes good news can follow bad news or even really bad or troubling circumstances. For instance, the heartbeat was after four straight miscarriages. The surgery was successful after watching your two-year-old be rolled away from you into the care of surgeons. Being hired was after losing the previous job abruptly a fear of a malignant diagnosis. You know, hearing your name called after everybody else, it feels like, has been chosen before you. Reconciling with a, a spouse or a child or someone who has maybe said hurtful words or hurtful actions to you. Or just simply suffering dismal years of baseball because you lived in the Cincinnati area, not to speak the NFL career of the Cincinnati Bengals, right? Good news can also be somewhat confusing. You may have heard about the business owner who was opening up a brand new store. And so on the morning of the grand opening, they received a flower arrangement and on the card it read, sorry about your loss. And the business owner thought that was a little weird. So the next day he called the florist and said, hey, I've got a problem. I opened up a brand new store yesterday and I received a flower arrangement from your, from your establishment with no name, but it just said, sorry about your loss. And the florist said, you have a problem. I'm sure there's somebody right now standing beside the casket of their loved one reading a card that reads, congratulations on your new location. News can be confusing, it can be troubling, it can be unsettling, right? And so for the past several weeks, we've been reading through John 14, 15, 16, and soon to be 17 next week. And the words that Jesus is saying to his followers, his closest friends, are a mixed bag. In fact, the words he said, some of them are just troubling. Like he says, one of you is going to betray me. He says, if the world hates you, just know that it hated me first. He says, I'm going to him who sent me. Some of the words were challenging. Jesus making statements like, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. Jesus says, I've set you an example that you would go and do the same for others. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you should love one another. The words were also encouraging. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God, trust also in me. Jesus says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. If you remain in me, you'll bear much fruit. And then he said, the spirit will come and he will guide you into all truth. I mean, all of these statements made by Jesus are true. They're intended to prepare his followers to understand his identity, his mission, his way of life, the way of living and loving, and also to believe and follow him. But they aren't the easiest words to listen to. They can be confusing, they are challenging. They are certainly true for the disciples who are hearing these words in one sitting for the very first time without the benefit of seeing how it all would play out. But Jesus gives these words and today we're going to hear some good news, truth spoken by Jesus that follows some very difficult words. And I think they're designed to help his first hearers, the disciples, and you and I now just walk in the way of Jesus. 
We're going to pick up John 16, if you want to turn there with me. Actually, verse 16. So John 16, 16, John records Jesus saying these words. Jesus went on to say, In a little while you will see me no more. Then after a while you will see me. Once again, Jesus, their faithful leader, has told them, I'm going to leave you. And the disciples had experienced a range of emotions in all the words that Jesus had already said to them, but this news hurt the most. They had left everything to follow Jesus. They trusted him as the Messiah. They thought he was going to relieve them of Roman oppression. He was going to establish political freedom and even provide some material blessings along the way. They had placed their entire hope in him, and now they were confused by what he was saying. Look at what verse 17 and 18 John records. At this, some of the disciples said to one another, what does he mean by saying, in a little while you will see me, and then you will see me, uh, you will see me no more, and then after a while you will see me. And because I'm going to the Father. They kept asking, what does he mean by a little while? We don't understand what he's saying. I think we need to feel uh, for the disciples here. They're hurting. Their first emotion is confusion, bewilderment, even perplexity. Their leader's leaving them, and even worse, he's using language that they just can't track with. In these three verses, the phrase little while is used five different times. It shows that Jesus is all-knowing, and yet the disciples, uh, they uh, are just confused. They did not know what was happening. Scholars just, are, just have a little bit of discussion about what these words literally mean. In a little while, you will see me no more. Most people think that refers to the fact that Jesus was going to die by crucifixion and be buried in the grave. He would be gone for three days, and the disciples all thought, end of the story. Regardless of how many times Jesus had told them, he would rise after the third day. That leads us to the next part where Jesus says, in a little while, you will see me. And he's referring to the fact that he's going to come back to life, that the resurrection was a truth. He, they would see him before he went back to heaven. And the disciples add, because I'm going to the Father, just to kind of maybe show their confusion. Friedrich Godet, he says this, where for all of us, it's clear, for them, it was all mysterious. If Jesus wants to found the messianic kingdom, then why go away? If he does not wish it, then why return? Well, Jesus addresses their question in this moment with some good news. And I think the first good news that he offers them is this. Your grief will turn to joy. Listen to what he says to them now reading in verse 19. Jesus saw that they wanted to ask him about this. So they said to him, are you asking one another? So he said to them, are you asking one another what I meant when I said in a little while you will see me no more. And then in a little while after you will see me. Very truly, I tell you, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. But you will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. Jesus draws a striking contrast here between the sorrow of the disciples and the joy of the world. At the crucifixion of Jesus, Jesus says the world will rejoice, but the disciples, they would weep. At the resurrection, the disciples are filled with joy. Their grief turns to joy. You know, the joy that the world offers seems to be temporary or fleeting. But the joy that Jesus is describing his disciples would have is lasting. As Christ followers, we kind of have this weird thing that happens at the same time. We have joy and grief that are coexisting. They abide side by side with, of, uh, they're side by side emotions. Through our spirit-filled experience, because we have the Holy Spirit in us, God can transform our grief into joy. The Holy Spirit comes to counsel us, to comfort us, to guide us into truth, to help us. 
And we go through the exact same experiences that those without the Spirit go through, but the difference is, is we have a different perspective, a different filter. Jesus, he, he wants us to understand that we can have joy even in the midst of grief. And then he makes an analogy to kind of unpack what he's talking about. Look at what he says in verse 21. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. But when the baby has been born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into this world. So with you, now is your time for grief, but I will see you again and you will rejoice and no one can take away your joy. Now, personally, I've never given birth to a baby. I'm no expert on the subject, even though I've witnessed it up close and personal three times. I remember the birth of our first child. We had gone through some preparation classes to be prepared for that, got some advice from other parents. And the one thing my wife was very clear on is that she was not going to have this baby without the help of some drugs. She wanted an epidural. And so from the moment we pulled into the parking lot at the hospital, we hadn't even got in the doors. The first person who greeted us, she says, hi, I want an epidural. She told everybody as they were putting her in the wheelchair, I want an epidural. Anybody that had white or scrubs on, she made sure that she heard, they heard her voice, I want an epidural. And so finally that moment came when the doctor came in and administered the drugs. Now in between those two points, as the pain was increasing, I was trying to be a good husband, a good soon-to-be father. I was following the advice that they had given us in childbirth classes. They said there'll probably be a, a while of waiting at the hospital, so take some snacks. Take something to um, entertain yourself. So while my wife was increasing in her pain, I'm eating Pop-Tarts, I'm playing solitaire, I invite her to play Uno, of which she had no interest. Now, at that moment when the doctor came in, there was a, a big change that happened. It only took about 30 minutes, to which my mother-in-law, who was with me, exclaimed, that was close. We were starting to see these horns pop out, weren't we? That was true, and I want you to know I do have permission to share this story from my wife. She was here first hour, and still I have plans for lunch with her and a place to sleep tonight, okay? Just wanted you to make sure of that. You know, this image of pains of childbirth is not a new idea to our modern world. Actually, Scripture uses it to describe the ushering in of the kingdom of God. The Old Testament prophets like Jeremiah and Micah and Isaiah, they use this to talk about this intense pain that the world would experience awaiting the Messiah, the ushering in of the kingdom of God. And Paul picks up on the same language when he talks about the groaning that we experience while we're waiting for the second coming. Romans 8 and 2 Corinthians 5 speak of both of these. The good news is, is that our grief can be turned to joy because the Messiah came. He lived, he died, he rose, he ascended, and he will come again. And those truths are bringing to us a lasting joy that no one can take away from us, Jesus says. Rick Warren says this, joy is the settled assurance that God is in full control of all the details of my life. The quiet confidence that ultimately everything is going to be all right. And a, a determined choice to praise God in every situation. I think that's why Jesus had said earlier in chapter 15, verse 11, I've told you these things so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. Some translations say, holy mature would be your joy. So my question for us today is, are you grieving right now? Did you recently lose someone due to a fatal illness? Do you have a personal relationship that seemed to go upside down or could be failing? 
Are you distraught by the violence that we see in the world around us, the unrest in our community and the world? Do you struggle with some particular sin in your life that just causes you to feel grieved? What do you do? Well, you can trust in Jesus. Jesus says, I can turn your grief into joy. He wants all of us to understand and experience the joy he offers. He stresses that we can go through pain with joy because of the peace and confidence that he brings us. No matter what we might go through, he challenges us to trust him, to rely on the Holy Spirit in us, to comfort us, to counsel us, to guide us, and to find joy amidst the pain. And that might be hard to comprehend or a challenge to experience, but it's possible because Jesus promised it. That's good news, that we can have joy despite pain, and it can't be taken away from us. Jesus goes on with some other good news. The second thing he says to them is, your doubt will turn to faith. Listen to what he continues to say now in verse 23. Jesus says, in that day, you will no longer ask me anything. Very truly, I tell you, my Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Until now, you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask, and it will, you will receive, and your joy will be complete. Though I've been speaking figuratively, a time is coming when I will no longer use this kind of language, but will tell you plainly about my Father. In that day, you will ask in my name. I'm not saying that I will ask the Father on your benefit. No, the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and entered the world. Now I am leaving the world and going back to the Father. Those are some pretty amazing words from Jesus. Jesus says that day, and in Scripture, typically when you see that day, it refers to the day of the Lord when Jesus comes back again in glory. But in this moment, that day is actually referring to Jesus' resurrection, when the disciples will finally fully understand all that he's been telling them about his life, his way of life, his ministry, his teaching. It will be clear to them because the Holy Spirit would make it clear to them. In verse 23, Jesus uses the word asked two times, and they actually mean different things. The first use of the word ask is he says, you will no longer ask me for anything. He's talking about like asking for information. He says, you won't need to do that because I'm not going to be here. I'm not going to be around. You won't ask me anything. The second is, is that you will ask the father. And that ask is talking about petition, or we would say through prayer. And he's describing to them something that's new ground territory for them. No longer will they have to ask him. They will ask the Father directly. And he makes a promise. God will give you anything you ask in my name. A couple weeks ago, Jesus said the same thing. He said, ask in my name and the Father will give it to you. And for some of us, asking in Jesus' name, we know what that means. But let's just make sure all of us understand The name of Jesus is powerful. It's not some magical formula, though. We shouldn't picture Jesus as like some vending machine in the sky or or God like some great cash register in the sky. We need to ask, according to Jesus' name, that God's good and perfect will would be accomplished in our life. Kenneth Gangle says this, when we pray in Jesus' name, it connects us to him by faith. It honors him as God. It proclaims his lordship in our life. Jesus says, from now on, you can go directly to the Father. And the Hebrew writer picks up on this idea of something that happened when Jesus died on the cross. When he died on the cross, the veil in the temple was torn from top to bottom. It literally was separated. And the Hebrew writer describes that and says, it's because now we have access. We can boldly approach the throne of God. 
and find grace and help in our time of need. We can ask the Father directly and he will hear us. One of the primary modes of Jesus' teaching to his disciples was often using figurative language. He would describe earthly things with heavenly meaning, and sometimes they were just kind of confused. Whether he was telling a parable or using hyperbole, sometimes he would have demonstrations like washing their feet, but it left them sort of scratching their heads at times. Several times they would pull him aside and he would explain to them. Other times they just had to figure it out a little bit, and they were confused, much like the other crowds or even the religious leaders. In verse 25, Jesus says, a time is coming when I'm just going to tell you plainly about my father. Many scholars think that he's referring to the time after the resurrection before he ascended back into heaven. Jesus would be reunited with his disciples in the upper room and he would teach them lots of things. In fact, all four gospel writers record some of these moments that happened. This teaching during these 40 days was illuminating for the disciples. Plus, you have to remember the coming of the Holy Spirit opens their mind to understanding all Jesus has been telling them. He said, it's good that I'm going away so the Holy Spirit will come and be your counsel, your comforter, your guide. They should believe in this and not doubt. And if there was one thing that Jesus didn't want them to doubt, it was that God loves them. That sounds simple and trite, but it's the foundation of everything. And Jesus says in verse 27, God the Father loves you. It's a real intimate love, a love expressed in the unity between God the Father and God the Son. This love is reflected when Jesus was here on earth, but it also is the presence of the Holy Spirit living in us. And Jesus didn't want them to be rocked by anything that they might experience. Isaiah 54, 10 says, though the mountains shake and the the hills or go away, my undying love for you will not be shaken. Verse 28, oh, uh, N.T. Wright said something I wanted to share. He says, this whole passage then is about the Father and how much he loves each one who trusts in Jesus and how great are the promises that he makes to each of us in Jesus. Verse 28 may be one of the most impactful statements uh, in this passage. It claims the entire mission of Jesus. It claims the true salvation plan, that Jesus came from heaven to earth. He entered the world as an agent of God's message and love, that he uh, purposely leaves the world through crucifixion. He resurrects and ascends to the Father in victory. And so we need to recognize that this direfully needed, remarkably crafted and supernaturally executed mission of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ was all motivated by the love that the Father has for us so that we could have faith in him. Jesus came, from earth, came to earth so that we could go to heaven. Jesus died on the cross so that we could live eternally. Jesus rose from the dead so that we could join him in victory. And we do that by placing our faith in Jesus. Well, speaking of this faith, we see the response of the disciples to what Jesus has just been saying. John records it in verse 29. Then Jesus' disciples said, now you're speaking clearly and without figures of speech. There's a little irony there, right? Like, but they're like, ah, we get it now. He says, "Now now we can see that you know all things and that you do not need even someone to ask questions for you to answer. This makes us believe that you came from God. Now the disciples have certainly been confused. They have had this maybe growing self-confidence that maybe isn't healthy up to this point. 
But now they express a confidence in Jesus, a belief that Jesus knows all things. They understand his teaching, they say. They claim that they no longer are confused, that all doubt is gone. And they make a statement of faith in Jesus. We can applaud their theology. Their words are right. But unfortunately, before sundown the next day, they have already come to a place where they collectively and individually abandon Jesus. Their hearts are being formed for faith. Their minds are being prepared for discernment. But it's not, they're not yet fully equipped with the Holy Spirit. And so it's still an, a growing thing in their life. J.C. Rouse says the enthusiasm is touching but insecurely based. Like young recruits, they had yet to learn that it's one thing to know the soldier's drill and wear the uniform, and yet quite another to be steadfast in battle. Now, the doubts of the disciples will eventually turn to a level of faith. In time, they will profess a fullness of faith. And that's something that gives us hope, that we might have a little bit of faith now, but it can grow. And so it reflects what Jesus says in Matthew 17, 20. If you have the faith, as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. So I wonder, what are your doubts today about? Are you wondering about your career or your profession due to just uncertain times? Do you have concerns about your health with this uh, persisting coronavirus? Do you have doubts within your marriage or your family or within relationships? Maybe you doubt your relationship with Jesus. You're, you're, you're not sure you will go to heaven. Well, I want you to know that the good news is this. God loves you. Jesus, he came to take away your sins. And through God's love and faith in Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit being in us, we can have confidence. We can have peace. We can have faith. Even though you might say, well, I just feel like my faith is so small. Jesus says if it's at least a mustard seed size, it can grow and it should. And it can bring you trust and confidence and joy. Jesus reacts to the statement of faith made by the disciples with, I think, one last statement of good news. He says, your fear will turn to peace. Listen to how he wraps up at least this chapter. Jesus says, do you now believe? It's kind of a satirical question there. Jesus replied, a time is coming, and in fact has come, where you will be scattered, each to your own home. Well, you, you will leave me all alone, yet I'm not alone. My Father is with me. I've told you these things, Jesus says, so that in me you may have peace. In this world, you'll have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus loves his disciples, but he recognizes the fragility of their faith. His death will hit them hard. The persecution they face will hit them hard. You know, the disciples had a great fear of abandonment from Jesus. And unfortunately, just like Jesus said, they would scatter at the most inopportune time his crucifixion. In verse 32, Jesus is quoting Zechariah 13, 7, which reads, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Gerald Borchard says, the glue of Christianity is not the disciples, it's Jesus, who will not abandon the disciples or let them become orphans, even though they would abandon him, not the reverse. You and I have a tendency to wander from God, But praise God, he doesn't wander from us. Jesus tells them, you'll abandon me, but the Father will not abandon me. I am not alone. We can't be confused by what we know Jesus is later going to say on the cross. In his agony, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But 
He's not abandoning in that moment. Yes, there is separation because of sin. Jesus would be buried in the grave for three days, and we can look at that as separation, but not abandonment. Jesus is walking through the deliberate plan that God had played and put into effect. Though he acknowledges their grief and doubt and fear in these words, I hope you didn't miss what he said. It's just a final conclusion of good news in verse 33. I've told you these things, Jesus said, so that in me you may have peace. Because in this world you'll have trouble. Amen? In this world you'll have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. We have this dual existence when we believe in Jesus. We are in him and we're also in the world. And the world is difficult. The world creates fear and anxiety and sorrow. The world's filled with trouble, persecution, affliction, tribulation, oppression, and trials. But Jesus has overcome the world. Amen? Do you believe that, that this world's going to be trouble, but Jesus has overcome the world? I hope you believe that. The, world, the word overcome actually comes from a Greek word, nikeia. And that word actually means to conquer, overpower, prevail, triumph, be victorious. The cool thing about this word is it's related to the modern day word Nike, but it didn't start there. Nike is actually the name of a, of a mystical Greek goddess. And it was also given to, uh, to describe people like Julius Caesar, or Alexander the Great, conquerors. But it's never been more appropriately descriptive of someone than when used to describe that Jesus came and he conquered the world. Jesus has overcome the world. He's overcome the prince of this world. He has overcome the schemes of the devil. And the good news is because Jesus overcame, you and I can overcome through him. That's why Paul says in Romans 8, 37, in all things, we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. You know, John wrote some more books in the rest of the New Testament. In his first epistle, 1 John 5, he writes this, everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that's overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. That's the kingpin to having the good news as our focus, that Jesus is the Son of God. Our strength comes from him. Our courage comes from him. Our security comes from him. Our encouragement comes from him. Our hope comes from him. Our peace comes from him. Jesus promises disciples that their fear will turn to peace. And so what's causing you fear right now? You know, is it the fact that you might have a serious illness or that you fear cancer or heart attack or things that are prolific in our world? Are you unsettled due to the pandemic? Are you scared by the raging violence in our world or the upcoming election? Do you fear death? Well, the good news is you can turn your fear into peace. You can overcome. And every example that I gave at the beginning of this message is that I had a choice. Was it going to focus on the negative or trust God to see me through? When your two-year-old has surgery, when it's another miscarriage, when it's another difficult relationship, in all those situations, God is victorious. And so I want to leave you with good news. And the good news is this. You can have joy in the midst of grief. You can have faith in the midst of doubt. You can have peace in the midst of fear by trusting the good news that Jesus has overcome. You know, if you flip to the end of the Bible, you'll see that this God's plan and message ends 
on a note of victory. The same John who wrote about Jesus' life and ministry and taught us how he's living and loving, he had a vision of that came from Jesus. And he, he documents this vision in a book that we call Revelation. Jesus asked John to write to seven different churches. And the message he gives to every, of the, every one of those churches is a message of being victorious in the battle of life. He speaks of overcoming, of being victorious to all seven churches. Listen to what he says. To the one who's victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. To the one who's victorious, I will give authority over the nations. To the one who's victorious, I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne. Those who are victorious will inherit all this, Jesus says, and I will be their God and they will be my children. May we be victorious. May our grief turn to joy. May our doubts turn to faith. May our fear turn to peace because Jesus has overcome. Would you pray with me? God, thank you for good news. Thank you for a message that we need to hear, maybe even more than the disciples needed to hear it in that moment in the first century. God, we live in a world that's filled with trouble. It's not hard to even wonder what that looks like. God, we feel it around us, and at times it feels like the walls are closing in. God, we don't have to live that way. We don't have to live with grief. We don't have to live with doubts. We don't have to live with fear. Not because the things in this world aren't troubling, but because you are victorious. And God, the path of getting from those things to where you want us, Lord, is, is not earning it. It's not going and finding it. It's not mustering up uh, it from within us. It's actually receiving it from you by faith. The fact that who Jesus is, is true, then that brings us joy. It brings us faith. It brings us peace. To know that he has conquered the world, that he's conquered sin and death, that there is nothing that can take our faith away from us, God, then we want to hold true to that. We want to stand strong in that. And God, I pray that if there's somebody here today who feels like they, they, it's, that is so far out of their reach, I pray that they would feel you drawing near to them. I pray that they would understand that it's found in you. They can hold tightly to you and come to know you and experience those things in their life. God, I pray for the rest of us. Those who know that those things are true in our head, God, would that go a lot further in ourselves and to our soul, that we would live every day with that kind of confidence that kind of joy, that kind of peace, that kind of reality. And God, that when the things come in our life that would tend to trouble us, we can have peace because you have overcome the world. God, I pray that as we stand strong in the face of those things, that the world would notice. They would be curious about why, and we'd be able to point them to you and show that you are strong and you are good no matter what. And God, through that, they would come to know you and to have a deep abiding peace and joy and strength because of who you are. And I pray that through the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.